0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A young female law school graduate vanishes into thin air, but a shocking discovery would reveal a threat right next door. This is the Lauren Giddings story. Megan great to see you as always and I know that we are both getting pretty close to the wire here at the end of our semester yes favorite time of year (laughs) right our breaks is that what you're saying yep yep I I don't know about you but I am very excited for the upcoming winter break and a semester burnout but it also gives us some nice time to just sit down and you know work focus a little bit on this kind of work and you know Mm -hmm. do you have anything planned for the break nope just trying to catch up Yeah, I guess that's probably what I have, too. We know that the holidays can be stressful, too, so we hope that our listeners find a little relief in listening to these episodes, and we're so grateful for you and your continuing support. Today's episode was suggested by a listener, and we thank you for bringing us the Lauren Giddings case. Lauren Teresa Giddings was born in 1984 in Tacoma Park, Maryland, to parents Bill and Karen. Lauren had two sisters and was the first to leave home choosing to go to a small liberal arts school near Atlanta, Georgia, to study medicine with hopes of becoming a doctor. Interesting, Amy, when we cover some of these episodes recently, remember, like we covered some Texas ones. We're like, oh, we just got back from Texas. Now this is Atlanta. Oh, we just got back from Atlanta. Um, I feel like we're connected to these cases in some ways, right? Yes. At least geographically. So Lauren had gone to study medicine with the hopes of becoming a doctor, but sometime into her fourth year, Lauren realized that medicine wasn't quite for her. So she pivoted her attention to political science and went on to work for a think tank for a year following her graduation in 2006. I don't know if you know this, Amy, but as an undergraduate, I was also a political science major.
1: That makes sense. That's very adjacent to law and criminology. But here's
0: why. My advisor at the time told me, because I was interested in criminal justice, it's just a fad. It's just a trend. Go with something more, you know, reliable and, and, <laughs> and long-lasting. Well, you proved them wrong. Go, so maybe the joke's on me. It was 22 <laughs> years ago, right? In 2008, after performing a legal internship, Lauren went on to attend Mercer University's law school in Macon, Georgia, a quiet, charming town with trees and Victorian homes lining the streets. I mean, this felt like the heart of a very safe and picturesque city, and Lauren's parents said that they felt very comfortable leaving her there in this new apartment. She was literally in the heart of this beautiful historical district, and Lauren's apartment building was called the Barrister Hall Apartments, and her apartment building was right across the street from the law school, so a very close proximity. Barrister's Hall contained eight apartments, each with two apartments upstairs and downstairs in the rear and in the front. And there was an identical building right next door for a total of 16 apartments between two buildings, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, again, eight apartments, but two buildings right adjacent to each other. While it had once been a very run-down kind of eyesore, the complex owners renovated it really nicely for the law and medical students who were the primary students at Mercer— The apartments, if you take a look at them, and I'm sure everyone will want to, kind of look like a very, very cute, almost retro motel. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Lauren was 27 years old uh, when she was accepted to the law program. Lauren was very driven. She was very passionate about the law. And Amy, I know you're going to appreciate this. Lauren became involved with the Public Defender's Office, and it was her dream to practice there upon earning her degree. At the time of the events we're going to discuss, Lauren was studying for the bar exam and was making plans to move in with her boyfriend, a lawyer by the name of David Vandiver. More on him later. It sounds like an exciting time for her. It was a very exciting time. It was a little bit stressful, too, because, you know, studying for the bar, we know people who have done that. And so Lauren had to buckle down a little bit, but she was hopeful. She was she had all the potential in the world. But unfortunately, Lauren might never get to use her talents. On June 29th, 2011, Lauren's sister Caitlin was trying to get in touch with her as it had been a few days since they had spoken and Caitlin was getting worried that she hadn't heard from Lauren. Now, Lauren had told people that she was gonna be studying for the bar exam and really hunkering down. So, you know, everyone knew that she might not be as communicative, but Caitlin knew from the way that she and Lauren stayed in touch that Lauren would never ignore her for this length of time. And after getting no response from Lauren for three days, Caitlin contacted Lauren's good friend, Ashley, and asked if Ashley could go over and check on Lauren. She was really getting worried. So Ashley and her boyfriend went over that evening to Lauren's apartment. Lauren's car was parked in the driveway, but after knocking and calling, Lauren wasn't answering. So Ashley, upon Caitlin's kind of insistence, took Lauren's spare key and entered the apartment. There was no sign of Lauren. However, all her belongings were accounted for, including her keys and purse. They were right there in plain sight, meaning that unless she'd taken a walk, Amy, or a run somewhere, which was kind of improbable at that point, something was not quite right because where was Lauren if all of her belongings were here? There's a video in which you can see there are actually numerous videos of this case. Um, You know, there are documentaries or, you know, episodes. So you can see from the video that Lauren's apartment was kind of messy. Kind of the way yours would look if you didn't live with Alan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think that might have just been Lauren. But both Caitlin and Ashley had a very bad feeling. And so Ashley called 911 to report Lauren missing. And then Ashley began to call Lauren's classmates to see if anyone knew where Lauren was. But the problem here is that no one had seen or heard from Lauren for at least three days. Wow. That's a long time. It is a long time, you know, in the age of, you know, texting and social media and constant contact. And Lauren was very, you know, social. She had friends, family. It's a while. So the police responded quickly. And after learning that she was supposed to be moving in with her boyfriend, officers found it a little disconcerting that nothing in her apartment suggested that she'd be in in the midst of packing. So during this time when she was studying for the bar exam, they also thought, uh, I guess Lauren also said that she was going to be packing, getting ready to move. You're nodding your head or you're shaking your head.
1: Well, because if I was studying for the bar exam, I would put moving on the back burner and just get that out of the way before I started packing. And some people wait to the last minute. Very good point. So I don't think that's really a strange thing. I don't think they
0: thought it was the strangest. I just think it was like a note, like, hmm, that's a little bit odd. While officers looked over the apartment, Ashley and her boyfriend, alongside Lauren's friends and neighbors, began looking for Lauren. However, it wasn't long before the police discovered their concerns were warranted. You see, the next day, which was June 30th, investigators were searching for clues outside of Lauren's apartment building. And Amy, this happened to be a very windy day. And so officers said with the winds carrying everything, they got a whiff of something that smelled very bad. And they they kind of knew right away what the smell was. So they decided to check the trash behind Lauren's building. And what they discovered was a large black plastic bag as the source of the smell. When they opened the bag, officers were shocked to find the torso of a female. Oh. I know. Wow. No other body parts were found, but... Based on the fact that Lauren was missing and this was behind her apartment and it was a female, they believed that they had just found the torso of Lauren Giddings. Wondering if Lauren had been murdered and dismembered in her own apartment because of this proximity, investigators went back into her home with Luminol to see if there was any blood spatter evidence. Now, I know most of our listeners are familiar with Luminol as, you know, savvy true crime listeners, but for anyone who might not be, Luminol is a compound that lights up when it comes in contact with blood. As one of the on-scene officers later said, the bathtub, quote, lit up like a Christmas tree. And investigators felt fairly certain that Lauren was killed and subsequently dismembered in her own home. So this was no longer a missing persons case, Amy. This was now a homicide. Police began interviewing Lauren's friends and her neighbors to see if maybe they saw anything or knew anything that might suggest who would want to harm Lauren. They also spoke to her friend Ashley about Lauren's relationship with an ex-boyfriend by the name of Alex, who had been part of the search party that first day. Remember, I said that her friends kind of mobilized to look for her. So Alex was one of those people. But also, police knew that they needed to speak with her current boyfriend. Remember, I said he was a lawyer by the name of David. This is what Ashley reported as well. They were all at a recent party together, Lauren, her boyfriend, other friends, Alex, who was Lauren's ex-boyfriend, and that was on June 24th. And while Alex and Lauren had broken up, you know, about two years earlier, they still remained close friends. Lauren's friends also gave police other information into her current relationship with David. They said that they thought Lauren's relationship with David was very rocky and they weren't sure that he was happy about Lauren moving in with him. But it seemed that David had a pretty solid alibi, having been away on a golf trip. But David revealed that Lauren had recently sent him an email, Amy, saying that she thought someone might have been in her apartment without her consent. That's creepy. Why did she think that? Well, Lauren had also told her sister, Caitlin, that one time she came home from a short trip and she just had this feeling that some of the things in her apartment had been moved around, that they weren't where she left them.
1: I don't think I'd ever be able to go back to my apartment.
0: I don't think so either. And you know what? I would know if things were moved around because I'm very particular about where I keep things. So mm-hmm. I would know immediately, like, where I, where I keep my books on my table. Yeah. So, yeah, I would be very leery to go back. I guess Lauren maybe wasn't quite sure, and it was just a, a feeling. The police wondered if there might be some kind of love triangle motive here. Because when they spoke to Alex, he said that Lauren had stayed over his house the night of that party, but that she had left the next morning on June 25th alive and well. So this didn't look good for Alex right off the bat. You know, you've got him as the last person to see her. There are exes. She has a current boyfriend. But the police were able to corroborate this, luckily, because Lauren was captured on camera later that day at a local country club pool. This was good for Alex that they were able to verify that Lauren, you know, was in fact seen on camera later that day. However, police were still a little bit suspicious because they still felt like maybe there was some motive for Alex to harm Lauren if perhaps there was still something going on with the pair and he was jealous of this relationship with David. So of course, Alex is going to remain a suspect. But the police were also focusing a lot of their efforts on the crime scene itself The police dug through all of Lauren's belongings, trying to find out who had killed her when it happened. They're looking for clues. And in doing so, they found a fast food receipt dated the evening of June 25th and the bag which contained the food. So they're also piecing together a timeline here, right? Lauren was seen on the 25th at the country club. She had obviously or it likely seemed that she had gotten some fast food that evening and brought it back to the home Mm -hmm. of the 25th. In checking outside the apartment building, the police found a maintenance room. With saws and other tools in it, so they called in the crime scene techs to come analyze the tools, wondering if any of these had been used to dismember Lauren, because this was the maintenance room for these apartment buildings. One of the hacksaws in that room appeared to have some blood on it, so they sent it to the lab for testing. Now, Amy, only a few people had a key to the maintenance room, so the police felt like they'd found a good lead here. They questioned the maintenance manager of the building. Who was also a law student, but his only alibi for his location for the time of the murder was that he was in his apartment studying, likely because everyone was studying at this time for the bar exam. However, that wasn't exactly a solid alibi for him. Meanwhile, DNA confirmed that it was, in fact, Lauren's torso found near her apartment, and the blood on the hacksaw was also hers. Experts determined that this had not been a case of sexual assault. This information is sometimes helpful in identifying potential perpetrators, but would it be helpful in Lauren's case? The police interviewed all of Lauren's neighbors and asked if they could search their apartments because, right, they've identified a tool in the apartment building. Possibly someone in this building is a perpetrator.
1: And there's not that many apartments in the building, if I recall.
0: That's exactly right. There's not. So all of the neighbors agreed to allow a search of their home Except for Lauren's neighbor, Stephen McDaniel, who helped in her search that first night and was a fellow law student who, like Lauren, had just graduated and was studying for the bar. Stephen also, just for a point of reference, Amy, Stephen lived in the apartment directly next door to Lauren's. Spring is in the air, and that means it's time for a refresh. I'm talking about luxuriously soft and stylish loungewear, pajamas, and bedding from Cozy Earth. I'd live in this loungewear full-time if that was an option. In fact, it's pretty much the option right now, just so you know. I actually have a couple of sets of the bamboo pajama sets. I have both the long-sleeve one for when it's a little bit colder, and I have the short-sleeve one because now that I'm pregnant, I'm sleeping a little bit hotter these days, and between the short sleeve pajama set and my bamboo sheets, my sleep is like a dream. You literally can't go wrong with Cozy Earth. And the reason why is because Cozy Earth products are made with soft, temperature-regulating viscose from bamboo. This is the secret ingredient. My favorite products are the sheets because the sheets are my every night sleeping. I have finally found the sheets that I sleep the most comfortably in and especially because I sleep cool and that's what I need for a comfortable night of sleep. Best of all, Cozy Earth products come with a 100 night sleep trial. That means that you can sleep on it and wash it for up to 100 nights. And if you're not in love, you can return it for a full refund. Fall in love with everyday luxury at Cozy Earth. Go to cozyearth.com and enter our promo code CRIME, C R I M E, at checkout for up to 35% off. That's cozyearth.com promo code CRIME. So, police were a little bit concerned here. He's the only person that won't consent to a search, and there are reasons why you might not. In fact, Initially, McDaniel told the police when they asked, why why can't we search? You know, he said, you know, quote, maybe it's the lawyer in me. But this made police very suspicious. I know you're you're putting up your hand. But yeah, you know, I'm thinking the same thing. There's definitely legitimate reasons why you might not want police to search your home. However, in this case, you know, I would let an officer search my home.
1: At this point, do they have any other information on this guy? Anyone say he's a creep or anything? They don't. I think they initially
0: noticed that he's a little bit of an oddball, I will tell you that. So their own observations are that, but it's not that any other information came forward at this time. He did sit down for an interview with the police. It's interesting, the lawyer in him didn't want to search, but the non-lawyer in him sat down for an interview without any representation. That's strange. Yes, and he talked to police for quite some time on June 30th going into the morning hours. It was a little bit of a strange interview, though we don't you know, judge those, but he was silent at times and apparently talked too much at others. And the police had seen an earlier interview that McDaniel had given to the press and it did not sit well with him. I'm going to play you this interview and you you were going to, you know, we're going to watch it. And I encourage others, you know, not just to listen, but to watch it. And I want to hear what your thoughts are, just a little bit. So I'm going to go ahead and just play this for
2: you right now. Person that was living there? Yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, We're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and no one's heard from her since.
1: Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time, anything
2: like that? I mean, no, no. No one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've always seen noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May.
1: What kind of person
2: was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you
1: know
2: anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went, at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but... I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we we just don't know where she is.
1: What about um, in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of. I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body. Had you heard? Had you seen anything there?
2: Had you seen anything there?
1: I. I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there.
2: Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down.
0: Okay. I just want to recap really quickly. This is an interview with a reporter where Stevens expressing his concern about Lauren, saying that, you know, he wished he could help. We don't know what happened with her. And then all of a sudden, the reporter brings up something that Stephen doesn't know. And she says, well, what about this body that was found? And if you can see, he goes, you know, a little bit pale and says, you know, body, I think I need to sit down. He looked a little bit nauseous, perhaps faint. And so police found this suspicious. But
1: what do you think, Amy? I mean, it could go either way, like everything in hindsight. If this gentleman ends up being the murderer, then I'm going to look at it different. But... Based on what I know at this point, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And if I found out that there was a body found right next to my apartment building, I would probably feel a little sick as well. Especially if it was someone I knew. And you know, that was my initial thought. Police were suspicious
0: of him, you know, with the interview, with the search, and I think it just, you know, um, almost like confirm is it confirmation bias yeah. or?
1: I also think he, if if I was really going to analyze. But again, innocent till proven guilty. I have no reason to suspect this person. But he did. He kept saying, we don't know where she is. We don't know where she is. We don't, Like he kept kind of like repeating himself and acted as if he was like an integral part of what was going on. Yes. Which was very interesting as well, because
0: he was friendly with Lauren, but he wasn't, you know, a best friend. But, you know, he was a neighbor. I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, I felt like you, though. You know, I thought, geez, well, if I live next door to someone and on camera, someone just said, what about this body? And I hadn't known. I think I would be sick and feel faint as well. So. Too early to judge or a key piece of the puzzle? Well, let's get back to Stephen's interview with the police because eventually he agreed to let police search his place, but reluctantly, and I think you'll understand why. When the police conducted their first search, they found condoms, which would not seem odd for a young man, right, of his age. But during his original interview, Stephen had claimed that he was not sexually active and had no plans to be sexually active until marriage. I'm not really sure how or why this factored into his interview. Again, remember I said he was odd at times, talking too much at times about certain things. So the police just thought, well, this is weird than that he has condoms because he made a very big point of it. Like, this is, you know, who I am and not what I'm doing. Well, the why isn't really as interesting as the how. Because Stephen told police in a spontaneous utterance, That he had broken into two of his neighbors' houses and stolen these condoms from them. He did not say why he had done this, but this is obviously a huge red flag. He's just spontaneously admitted to burglarizing two of his neighbors' apartments and taking condoms. That's very strange. It's very, very strange. And, you know, it's only one of many strange factors here. Police also found that Stephen was in possession of a master key to the building, which he definitely should not have had and which he clearly had to have stolen from someone. But that's unclear if he stole it from the maintenance manager, the owner. If someone else had it, it only could have been a few people. So we're not I'm not really sure how he got a hold of that, but he definitely stole that. And they also found a copy of a key they couldn't identify. But when they tested it out, they found that this key unlocked Lauren's apartment. So he had a key to hers.
1: This is not looking good. He never said he had a key for any reason or gave up that information. Yeah, that doesn't look good. Absolutely not.
0: Maybe he didn't think that they would even look at keys or test keys, but they sure did. They also found, police also found a a pair of female underwear located in his apartment. And after being sent out for lab testing, it was matched to Lauren's DNA. So it was, in fact, her underwear. You might probably say that he stole that as well. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the most critical findings as well was the cover to a hacksaw, and it was a match to that hacksaw that was found with Lauren's blood on it. And then there was, Amy, the hundreds of photos that Stephen had of Lauren electronically. How did he have them? From a thumb drive he had stolen from her apartment as well.
1: Okay, so he's clearly obsessed with this woman. Yes,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. He also took a video filming Lauren in her apartment on June 25th. That was the last night she was seen alive. Late in the evening. He apparently had the camera on some type of pole. Those long poles. Mm -hmm. And he was filming her her every movement in her apartment unbeknownst to her for quite some time. That's so creepy. McDaniel's internet history revealed searches including sadomasochism, bondage, how to get away with murder, and how to dismember someone.
1: So needless to say, Megan, they arrested this fellow?
0: They absolutely arrested him. Just so you know, though, they arrested him initially for burglary for those two break-ins that he admitted to. But after the police gathered more evidence, he was also charged with Lauren's murder in August 2011. I'd also like to point out that when they searched his place, they also found various handguns, knives, and a samurai sword.
1: Well, now we know why he didn't want them to search.
0: We absolutely do. There was no trial in this case, Amy, because I think Stephen knew that he could not win. The evidence was overwhelming. And Stephen ultimately pleaded guilty three years later on April 21st, 2014 to Lauren's murder. Stephen received a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. The burglary charges would be dropped, but he would be required in conjunction with this plea to provide exact details of his crime. So here is what Stephen McDaniel allocuted to. He said that he broke into Lauren's home on the morning of June 26, 2011, around 4:30 a.m., entering with a key that he had made a copy of. Now possibly, I'm sure he did tell the police how he got a copy of her key. I didn't come across that information. Stephen said that Lauren was sleeping but woke and a fight ensued. Lauren fighting back And pulling off Stephen's mask and recognizing him. And when she did, she pleaded with him to stop and to get out. But according to Stephen, he strangled Lauren to death on the floor of her bedroom, her legs getting trapped underneath the bed, making it hard for her to move and fight back because she was fighting, but she was pinned. Stephen said that after he strangled her to death, he placed Lauren in her bathtub and left, returning later to dismember Lauren's body and placing Lauren's head legs and arms across the street in garbage cans by the law school unfortunately these parts were never found because it looked like trash removal services came before they could be located
1: i'm just curious here what was the motive sorry if i'm jumping ahead no you're not but i will get to that
0: because this was a little bit more complicated with motive i think and will leave us some room for you know speculation McDaniel expressed remorse in his statement to the court, saying he could not explain how he could have done something like that and then gone on with his daily routine. He said that there must be something wrong, though, in his biological makeup and that he wished he could take it back. I don't know how remorseful he seemed. I'm not sure that this was a true statement of remorse. I think that McDaniel was also very shocked when her torso was found because he thought the sanitation workers had already come. That mistake for him was the game changer for the police. Stephen McDaniel later appealed on grounds of ineffective counsel, but his claims were denied. More recently, in 2022, Stephen McDaniel moved to have his plea and subsequent conviction vacated, claiming that a deputy from the sheriff's office removed documents central to his defense ahead of his plea deal and provided them to the prosecutor. There's no way to know if this claim has any veracity to it, but I suspect that it does not. The prosecution already had a very strong case and really did not need this information. But we will have to wait until the court decides. For now, Stephen McDaniel remains incarcerated for life.
1: I have a question. Wouldn't that be considered harmless error then because they have all this other evidence against him?
0: I don't think that would be harmless if there was information that was removed by law enforcement and provided illegally.
1: Oh, so it would be a never mind. Okay, I misunderstood. Yeah, right. So
0: I wouldn't say I wouldn't say the issue is harmless error. It could be a problem, but they would have to prove that that actually happened. And also possibly, yeah, the judge might say, but with the overwhelming evidence, it wouldn't Mm -hmm. have mattered anyway. Again, I have a sneaking suspicion that this is not going to go anywhere, this claim. But we'll see. And of course, we'll keep people updated. Now, we have a lot to discuss here in terms of motive and theory.
1: I want to know more about this man's background. Who is he?
0: I'm going to give you a little bit of information of what I found, okay? He was born in Georgia himself to church-going parents. Stephen was described by many as a bit quirky. He grew up with several siblings, but from what I saw, they were actually his sister's children. Apparently, his sister had a problem with crack cocaine, and her parents raised her children. By all accounts, Stephen's parents were very hardworking, honest people. His dad worked as a house painter, but he was very interesting because He held a PhD, he had a lot of different interests. You know, he was kind of a jack of all trades. Stephen did not have a criminal history or anything that I could find that was a red flag in his childhood. But he was described by former teachers as someone who was bright, but who did not really put in the effort to live up to his potential. He was somewhat of a loner, socially awkward, and someone who mostly kept to himself, though he did socialize occasionally. He had asked, just so you know, he had asked Lauren out on a date, and I think it was more than once. Lauren politely declined, but she was still very nice to him and reportedly still got along with him. I think that Stephen felt rejected by Lauren, but he also seemed to have violent fantasies about her in particular. Police had found that he was looking at photos of Lauren at times when he was searching out Very violent sexual scenarios on the internet.
1: He clearly had an unhealthy obsession with Lauren. He did. He absolutely did. And I think he also had an unhealthy
0: obsession with violence at the time and violent fantasies that maybe were escalating in in conjunction with the time he spent living next to Lauren.
1: You mentioned that he had asked her out. Was that recent to the murder that she rejected him? Or what was the catalyst? Okay,
0: I'll tell you what I think the catalyst was. They were moving out. Lauren was moving in three days. Gotcha. And so was Stephen. Everyone was leaving. And so I think that he had asked Lauren out earlier on. And I think there was quite some time where he was, you know, burglarizing apartments, in particular Lauren's, taking things from her. So I think there was an escalation. Just so you know, Amy, too, you probably already know this, but burglary is also a red flag and often precedes violent crimes and in particular sexual assaults. And Stephen was breaking and entering Lauren's apartment before.
1: So he was escalating. That brings up a good point point because you mentioned that he didn't have a criminal history, but it's important to remember that lack of criminal history just means that you didn't get caught. It doesn't mean that you were not committing crimes.
0: Absolutely true. He was taking photos, underwear, and other items because he was fantasizing about doing certain things to Lauren, and that was clear from his history and what the police found. Do you find it odd then that there was no sexual assault? Yes, but I think possibly I could explain that as well. Possibly. Okay. So what I mean by that is ultimately, even if there wasn't a sexual assault per se, first of all, it doesn't mean that he didn't mean to and things just didn't go awry too quickly for him. Remember, this is his first, it seems like this was his first violent attack. But it also, Amy, doesn't mean that the strangulation didn't serve a sexual purpose. Hmm. And that is also something different. And you might, someone might say, well, what do you mean? Well, I teach serial murder and we typically designate serial offenders into One of four categories, which I'm going to briefly touch on here. So you have the type of a serial offender who's the visionary type. And this is usually someone who suffers from psychosis and kills in response to voices or visions. There's an example here, Herbert Mullen. He killed 13 people in California in the 1970s because he believed it prevented earthquakes. Okay, so this is not Stephen McDaniel. There's the mission-oriented type. They kill to rid society of certain groups of people, such as sex workers, the elderly, or a particular ethnic or racial group. Ted Kaczynski targeted institutions that promoted modern technology, so he was a mission-oriented type. Then you move on to the third type, and now this is the hedonistic. They kill for the thrill of murder and the satisfaction, usually sexual pleasure. This is a wide category, but these are often referred to as what we call lust killers. So this would be maybe your Ted Bundy or your Dahmer types. Then you have your power-control-oriented type. And the primary kill is not for sexual pleasure here, but for the killer's ability to control and exert power over a helpless victim. They enjoy their victim's pain and prolonged torture. So, you know, here you might have a John Wayne Gacy or Richard Ramirez. Now, this is a framework. It leaves out other groups, just so you know. There are other types of serial offenders. And why do I bring this up, okay? How does this pertain to Stephen? If this was Stephen's first attempt, why does he fall into this? The reason I bring this up is because I saw a very clear pattern of what I think was going to be an escalation to a serial offender. And I think that if we were looking at Stephen, he would probably have fallen into the lust killing or power control. He seemed to be exhibiting qualities of both. This is one potential explanation because of the way that I know a lot of serial offenders began. So many of them began by burglarizing, by taking things so I suspect that that might have been the path. Police felt very strongly that they had you know, apprehended a serial offender before he became one. But there's also another possibility here, Amy, that might be related to the term incel. Have you heard this before? Yes, I
1: find incels fascinating.
0: Okay, so incel stands for involuntary celibate, a term that originally stemmed from a nonviolent online support community for those who were longing for intimate relationships, right, but could not find one. Mm-hmm. It seems like this was established in the 1990s by a Canadian woman in her mid 20s. Today, incels are not. It's not an actual organization, right? Or a group with a clear structure. They're, you know, an undefined group of people that are largely active on online forums and message boards.
1: If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Megan, they're an extremist group. Like some people look at them as like a, a group. An extreme group that is terroristic in nature.
0: They can be. I think that's the confusion, though, because original incels are not, right? No, but I think it's morphed into that. It's Well, they're often associated with violence against women. I mean, again, the original term is not one that has any violent attachments. But in this case, it seemed that Stephen's anger—and and there have been cases now we know what's morphed. There have been incels that have um, directed violence against women now, unfortunately— So the issue now becomes that certain men are holding misogynistic views that stem from this rejection that they feel. And so the misogyny is also, you know, kind of leading to or correlated with the violence, right? And in this case, it seems that Stephen's anger against Lauren stemmed from the rejection and the lack of intimacy that primarily fueled him. You had asked what the, I think the trigger for the actual violent act was that he had to, I think he was planning it all along, but I think because they were moving this was his only opportunistic time. So you might also say, you know, the opportunity arose based on the timing of Lauren's departure. Plus, you mentioned that her boyfriend was out of town. They didn't know her boyfriend was out of town. They didn't live anywhere near each other. So her boyfriend just they just wanted to make oh, sure gotcha. that he, had an he wasn't alibi. normally there. Yes.
1: yes. Gotcha. I was just going to say maybe Lauren wasn't alone as often so maybe that also was well she was home too. a catalyst for her she was home so yeah, at times she was also away at her boyfriend's place right um so you
0: know whether steven was going to become a serial whether this was incel related he certainly felt rejected by lauren he fantasized about violence and he carried out the ultimate act before she had the opportunity to leave unfortunately cutting you know such a promising life so short and while the system got it right here, it still hurts when such a completely senseless crime happens. Again, taking away someone that would have, I really think Lauren would have just contributed so much, you know, to society. The irony, of course, too, is that Lauren was seeking to represent those arrested for crimes and to be a public defender. And she was murdered by the very same type of individual that she might have come to represent at some time.
1: It reminds me a bit of the Emmett case. Yes. Remember, Singh. she was studying forensic psychology and right. became a victim of a horrendous crime. Yes, that, that reminds me of that as well. I
0: want to comment that I think this was a very strong investigation from the start. You know, sometimes we talk about the process, and I think that the police, you know, they got lucky a little bit, but they pulled every investigative tool out, and they interviewed all relevant suspects immediately. They verified alibis promptly. You know, I think this was solved with some good old-fashioned police work, and so I wanted to give mm-hmm. them some... Kudos for that as well. I know that there is likely no comforting Lauren's family from what they had to experience, but at least having Lauren's perpetrator identified and incarcerated for life, I hope that brings them some measure of comfort. I read an article where Lauren's sisters Sarah, and Caitlin discussed seeing Lauren just before she died at Caitlin's wedding. It was her sister Caitlin's wedding, and they saw the whole family being together at this event shortly before her death as a blessing in disguise. Caitlin went on to name her daughter Lauren in her sister's honor, and she and Sarah plan to pass the memories of their Aunt Lauren down to their children. There's also a plaque and a pink bench dedicated to Lauren at Mercer Law School, where she is also remembered. Hmm. So I think Lauren's legacy will live on.
1: Yeah, cases like this are really hard to hear because it was so senseless, and Lauren had such a bright future ahead of her. But I'm glad that they were able to— apprehend the offender so that he cannot hurt anyone the way he hurt Lauren. Absolutely. I'm glad there was early apprehension here.
0: And I'm sure Lauren's legacy will live on. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include Medium.com, The Washington Post, an episode of Nightmare Next Door, an article from Above the Law, WGXA News, and an episode of A Time to Kill.